Old Testament scholar Ralph Davis said that Christians should be seized with a rambunctious curiosity. He said this, Since God has left the fingerprints of his wisdom everywhere, since there is no place where God does not furnish us with raw materials for godly thinking, Christians should be seized with a rambunctious curiosity to ponder his works, both the majestic and the mundane. The task of wisdom is joyfully to describe and investigate all God's works. We may not be Solomon's in insight, but we can gratefully examine the same data. That's what we'll see today in 1 Kings chapter 4. So turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 4. We're continuing our series wholehearted. And today we'll be reminded that as Christians, as the people of God, as those redeemed by Jesus and filled with His Spirit, as those who are in covenant with the Lord, we should be seized with a rambunctious curiosity. We should learn to approach God's Word and to approach God's world with a rambunctious curiosity. We should pick up the Bible and be seized with a rambunctious curiosity to ponder His Word. Why does it say that? What's that there for? What does that mean? And we should look around creation and be seized with a rambunctious curiosity to ponder God's world. We should approach both the majestic and the mundane with the same rambunctious curiosity. Fact. Rambunctiously curious Christians enjoy God's word and God's world more than others. Fact. Rambunctiously curious Christians see God everywhere. They connect Him not just with the majestic, not just with the miraculous, but they also connect Him even with the mundane, with the ordinary. And that's what we challenge to do today as we look at Solomon and his seemingly weird fascination with the way that plants can grow out of cracks in a wall. Today we'll be challenged to learn to come to Scripture, to come to God's Word, even come to the so-called difficult passages or the seemingly boring passages and learn to have a rambunctious curiosity when we come to those passages. When we open God's Word, we should be curious. Hmm. We should ask questions like, why is this here? What is this passage telling me about God and the world that He made? So we should think when we come to God's Word. We should ponder. We should mull things over. We should sit with the text and ask the Holy Spirit to illumine our minds. Ask questions like, where do I see the effects of the fall? The effects of sin? The effects of Adam and Eve's sin? And what is this passage telling me about God? I mean, at the very least, if you're in a passage and you don't know what it means, that's number one question you should ask. What is this passage telling me about God? You, will, you cannot go wrong if you ask that question. It even works for a passage that says, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. That verse is telling you something about your God. Now, you might need some help. You might need a book or a commentary to help you, and that's okay. 
Ask questions like, where do I see the effects of the fall, the effects of sin? What is this passage telling me about God? What is this passage telling me about Jesus? How is this passage exposing my sinful heart? What promises are here that I can trust to, trust in and cling to? Listen, if you're new to grace, you need to know that we place a high priority on the Bible here. Even those seemingly boring passages in the Old Testament that contain a bunch of hard-to-pronounce Hebrew names. And since Paul, speaking of the Old Testament in 1 Timothy 3.16, said that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for us, and since Paul also said in Romans 15.4 that whatever was written in the Old Testament was written for our instruction so that through the endurance and encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope, it would behoove us to see exactly what is profitable, what is encouraging here in 1 Kings chapter 4. And I would say that there is a lot. But we have to know what we're looking for. And what we need to be looking for is what this passage says about our God. What does it say about the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? What is this passage telling us about Jesus? What kind of God is being revealed in this passage? 1 Kings 4 was written to remind us and the original audience that rambunctiously curious Christians enjoy God's word and enjoy God's world more than others rambunctiously curious Christians see God everywhere and in everything. They want to enjoy God everywhere they go and in everything that they do. They pick a leaf up off the ground and they examine it. Sometimes my kids say, I'm bored, and I will tell them, go outside and pick up a leaf and look at it. Rambunctiously curious Christians pick leaves up off the ground and turn them over and examine them and look at the intricacy of how they're made. I saw one out here two weeks ago. It was bright red and orange like something you would see in the fall in New England. And I was like, what is that leaf doing there? Rambunctiously curious Christians stare at paintings. They savor a perfect cup of coffee. They get lost in sunsets. They listen to Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys, the greatest album of all time, by the way, and they marvel at the genius of Brian Wilson. And they read a Flannery O'Connor story, and they see the action of grace in territory held largely by the devil. They do what Solomon does in 1 Kings chapter 4. And 1 Kings chapter 4 is a preacher's dream. Here's why. Because it's full of all of these hard-to-pronounce Hebrew names. So challenge accepted, God be with me. Look at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were his high officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, was the priest. Elihoreph and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, were secretaries. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the army. Zadok and Abiathar were priests. 
Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the officers. Zabud, the son of Nathan, was priest and king's friend. Ahashar was in charge of the palace. And Adoniram, the son of Abda, was in charge of the forced labor. Solomon had 12 officers over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each man had to make provision for one month in the year. These were their names. Ben-Hur in the hill country of Ephraim, Ben-Decker in Makaz, Sha'albim, Beth-Shemesh, and Elom Beth-Hanan, Ben-Hesed in Ereboth, to him belonged Soko in all the land of Hefer, Ben-Abinadab in all Naphath-Dor, he had Tephath, the daughter of Solomon, as his wife, Ba'anah, the son of Ahilud, in Ta'anach, Megiddo, in all Beth-Sheen, that is beside Zareth and below Jezreel, and from Beth-Sheen to Abel-Meholah, as far as the other sand of Jachmim. Ben-Geber, in Ramoth-Gilead, he had the villages of Jer, the son of Manasseh, which are in Gilead, and he had the region of Argob, which is in Bashan, 60 great cities with walls and bronze bars. Ahinadab, the son of Edo, in Mahanaim. Ahamaz, in Naphtali. He had taken Basimat, the daughter of Solomon, as his wife. Ba'anah, the son of Hushai, in Asher, in Beeloth. Jehoshaphat, the son of Perua in Issachar. Shimei, the son of Elah, in Benjamin. Geber, the son of Uri, in the land of Gilead, the country of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. And there was one governor who was over the land. Okay, I know, I know it's not a very exciting text. You probably didn't get goosebumps just now. I mean, our appetites are not necessarily wet when we read that Jehoshaphat, the son of Helud, was recorder, or that Ben-Hur was one of the 12 officers, or that Solomon named one of his daughters Basimat. That's what it is in Hebrew. It looks like base math. Basimat. Not exactly morning devotional material, huh? I mean, how many of you turned to 1 Kings 4 for that morning spiritual pick-me-up? Really? A list of cabinet officials, food budgets... Horse stalls, Solomon's skill as a singer-songwriter, and his obsession with how a plant can grow out of a wall? I mean, it seems, on the surface, to be a somewhat boring passage, but it actually tells us a lot about God's character. You can learn a lot about Jesus in a chapter full of hard-to-pronounce Hebrew names. You can learn a lot about Jesus in a chapter full of names like Ben-Hesed, Abel-Meholah, and Jachmim. And what we'll see about Jesus in this chapter full of weird names is that the triune God that we worship is a promise-keeping God. And he's a joy-producing God. And he's a wisdom-giving God. 1 Kings 4 is reminding us that God is a promise-keeping God. He's a joy-producing God. He's a wisdom-giving God. And that ought to whet your appetites. But notice in verses 1 through 6 how generous the Lord was to Solomon. What seems like a boring list of government officials is actually proof of the Lord's kindness to Solomon. What we see as a boring list of hard-to-pronounce names is actually evidence of Yahweh's kindness to Solomon as the new king of Israel. We see that the Lord has provided Solomon with a high priest and secretaries and recorders and a commander of the army, priests, 
a friend, a commander of the palace, and a commander of the forced labor. All of these people were key officials that Solomon needed to help run the kingdom, and we see it as evidence that God has kept his promise to Solomon to not only give him wisdom, but also to establish his kingdom. This is God's kindness to Solomon. This seemingly boring list of people is actually evidence of God's kindness to the new king. This chapter is telling us that the God that we serve is generous. He's not stingy. You don't have to put his arm behind his back and make him cry uncle before he ever gives you anything. He's generous. He's kind. And he even cares about the little things in our lives. Yahweh has provided Solomon with all that he needs to run the country. And he even provided Solomon with a friend. How great is that? God cares that Solomon has a good friend. Oh, how sweet it is to have a friend. To have someone who accepts you unconditionally, who listens to you, who corrects you in love, and who is just there for you. The late pastor and theologian J.C. Ryle said this, This world is full of sorrow because it is full of sin. It is a dark place. It is a lonely place. It is a disappointing place. The brightest sunbeam in it is a friend. Friendship halves our troubles and doubles our joys. Friendship halves, halves, cuts in half your troubles and your sorrows, but it doubles your joys. And verse 5 tells us that Zabad was Solomon's friend. Zabad was Solomon's bud. Zabad was a priest But even more importantly, he was Solomon's friend. Zabud was Solomon's bud. What a generous gift. What a generous gift from the Lord. But we also see evidence of the wisdom given to Solomon from the Lord as Solomon divided up the kingdom into 12 parts. Solomon decided that each part of the kingdom would provide the king food for one month. So Solomon discerned the difficult task of trying to collect provisions from each division of the kingdom, from 12 different territories each month. So Solomon delegated that each group was only responsible for one month of the year. And that made his life much easier. That's wisdom. Big deal, you say? What does that mean to me? It means that God gave Solomon wisdom, a wisdom that extended all the way to the ordering of the affairs of everyday life. Notice how wide biblical wisdom is. It's not just limited to to book smart smart ideas or, or academia. Biblical wisdom is wide. There's a wideness to it. Wisdom is for everyday living. It's for tomorrow. It's for everywhere you go. And whatever you do, 
Wisdom extends to all of life, not just establishing and maintaining gigantic kingdoms like Solomon's. Even the stay-at-home mom can drink from the fountain of wisdom. The 10-year-old child can drink from the fountain of wisdom. The teenager struggling with a changing body and pimples and hormones can drink from wisdom's fountain. God's wisdom is available for every single person here. In fact, there's a whole book of the Bible dedicated to it, the book of Proverbs. Wisdom is not just something for kings of ancient Israel. You can get it. You can get wisdom today. But you may have to put your phone down or turn your TV off. Wisdom is available for all of us, but we need Jesus to rescue us. Perhaps never before in the history of the church has there been a people in desperate need of rescue. Rescue from themselves. Rescue from their phones. Ouch. Stings, doesn't it? We need Jesus to rescue us from our information. To rescue us from our 24-hour news cycles to rescue us from our Twitter feed, to rescue us from our Instagram posts that expose how desperate we want people to like us, to rescue us from our Facebook groups. We need Jesus to counsel us with His wisdom. We need Jesus to counsel us with His Word. And then we can truly begin to live. Otherwise, Our lives will be one long, slow death hooked up to the IV called social media. We need Jesus to rescue us from us. And we need wisdom from him so that we can truly live. Otherwise, our lives will be one long, slow death hooked up to the IV called social media. Some of us just need The healing that comes when you put your phone down and you walk outside and you observe God's world. At least once in a while. Don't grab your phone to take a picture of a sunset so you can put it on Instagram. Keep the phone in your pocket and just enjoy the sunset. I mean, I know, I know. If a tree falls in the forest and no one is around to hear it, does it make a sound? The same question should be asked of social media. If a sunset was enjoyed, was it really enjoyed if it wasn't posted on social media for other people to see? If you enjoyed a sunset and you didn't put it on Facebook, did you really enjoy it? I'm not saying you have to get rid of your phone, okay? I'm not saying you have to get off social media. I use both. I need, I'm admitting I need to put mine down more often. Okay, so I'm preaching to this guy right here. You think I'm preaching to you and you're mad at me. He's he's talking about me. I'm talking about me. If you feel something, that may be the spirit. I'm talking about me. Ask my kids. I need to put my phone down more. I'm not saying you have to get rid of your phone or you have to get rid of social media. But every once in a while, we should all just enjoy the sunset without thinking about posting it on social media. In other words, we should be seized with a rambunctious curiosity. We should all slow down enough to look at God's world and to enjoy it, to be seized with this rambunctious curiosity. We're going to get in there and find out more about leaves and what they look like and how they change. 
And we should carve out time to seek wisdom in God's word. We should pursue it. Pursue wisdom. Get it at all costs. That's what the book of Hebrews says, right? And where do we see the wisdom of God most clearly? Where do you see the wisdom of an infinitely glorious, sovereign God most clearly? You see it at the cross. Yes, there's wisdom in the book of Proverbs. Yes, there's wisdom in the uh, Old Testament wisdom literature. But where do we see God's wisdom most clearly on display? It's the cross. God's wisdom is seen in Jesus dying in our place and for our sins. The wisdom of God in substitutionary atonement. The world scratches its head at the cross because they see the cross as foolishness. But the cross is the pinnacle of God's wisdom. Ray Ortland says, Wisdom is the grace of Christ beautifying our daily lives. Paul said that God has lavished his grace upon us in all wisdom and insight, Ephesians 1. God's grace is smart grace. The Bible says that in Christ Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2.3. The wise way to live is not always obvious or intuitive or popular. It is hidden. Here's where it is hidden. We preach Christ crucified the wisdom of God, 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24. Christ crucified the wisdom of God. That's another reason the cross is front and center in our sanctuary. Because we're idiots. We're dummies. We need a weekly reminder when we look at the cross that God is infinitely wise and we're idiots. And that this is the wisdom of God. Christ crucified. For sinners like us. And we're going to be celebrating Christ crucified today as we celebrate communion in a moment. But first, before we eat and drink and are happy, we're going to see Solomon and company eat, drink, and be happy. Look at verse 20. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates from Tifsa to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates. And he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month. They let nothing be lacking Barley also and straw for the horses and swift steeds they brought to the place where it was required, each according to his duty. The wisdom of God resulted in the nation of Israel being safe from their enemies on all sides, at every border. And it resulted also in a lot of parties. There were a lot of celebrations. Verse 20 says that they ate and they drank and they were happy. They weren't deadbeats. They weren't curmudgeons. They weren't killjoys. 
They partied. And then we read about the daily provisions for Solomon's court, and this is staggering. Old Testament scholar Eugene Miller says this, the needs of the palace alone consisted of 185 bushels of flour, 375 bushels of meal, 10 head of stall-fed cattle, 20 head of pasture-fed cattle, for the free-range people, 100 sheep and goats, and miscellaneous wild game every day. Now, scholars have estimated that Solomon may have been feeding between four and 5,000 people per day. But is that simply the main idea of this section? Is that the big takeaway? That Solomon fed a lot of people every day? Is that the response? Yeehaw! The Lord has provided Solomon and his kingdom with a lot of food. Fire up the grills, let's barbecue. Is that the big idea? No. We must dig deeper than the mere physical blessing of food, which is a legitimate reason to rejoice. Good barbecue is a legitimate reason to rejoice. Now let me say that again. Good barbecue is a legitimate reason to rejoice. But it goes deeper than that. The theology oozing out of this text here is this. Yahweh has fulfilled His covenant promises. The Lord has been faithful to His promise to Abraham way back there in the Old Testament. We see this in verse 20 when it says that Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. The light should go off in our head. This harkens back to Genesis twenty-two seventeen, where Yahweh promised Abraham, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And the scope of Solomon's reign... It picks up the promises of Yahweh that he spoke to Abraham in Genesis 15, which says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And then verse 24 and 25 pick up the theme of peace, theme of safety, which was promised to King David and his offspring in the Davidic covenant, as it says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11, And I will give you rest from all your enemies. So it goes much deeper than good barbecue. What we really have here is another demonstration of Yahweh's faithfulness. We are seeing proof that God keeps His promises. He is being faithful to the covenant that He made way back there in Genesis with Abraham. The God that we serve keeps covenant. He's not fickle like we are. He's faithful. And that's the theology that's oozing out of the text. But you've got to slow down and ask questions to see it. And so what is this passage telling us about our God? What is it telling us about Jesus? It's telling us that the God that we serve is a faithful God who keeps all of his promises. And that is should stir our hearts and produce joy in us. That should whet our appetites. That should make us want to party. That should make us want to barbecue. Being seized by the fact that God keeps his promises should lead us to want to fire up our grills and barbecue something. Try that on for size, men. 
barbecue something at 10 p.m. and have your wife say, what in the world are you doing? You say, I'm just celebrating the fact that God keeps his promises. Being seized by the fact that Jesus is faithful to his promises should make us want to go out today and eat lunch with friends and family and celebrate that truth. And tell the waiter when they ask, what's the occasion? We're celebrating the fact that Jesus keeps his promises because we're so fickle. We turn on him all the time. He's faithful. We're celebrating that today. Why not go out to lunch today and celebrate the fact that God keeps his promises? And if you do go out to lunch today, because I love y'all, here's a courtesy reminder that Chick-fil-A is closed today. And since Chick-fil-A is closed, why not try the new Cracker Barrel out? If you haven't tried it yet. I think Solomon would have loved Cracker Barrel. Because if you haven't been in there, and when you walk into Cracker Barrel, you walk into the gift store, and you see all kinds of things that you can enjoy. Music, DVDs, T-shirts, vintage candy, toys, etc. It's all stuff that Solomon liked. Everything in the Cracker Barrel gift store is stuff that Solomon liked. Now let me show you. Look at verse 29. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethran the Ezraite and Heman and Calcol and Darda the sons of Mahol. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. And he also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. I mean, you can't help but notice that the author is making a point about wisdom that Yahweh gave to Solomon because six times the noun for wisdom is used and then twice the verb form, Solomon's wisdom was a free gift from Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. And Solomon's wisdom was superior to the wisdom of Mesopotamia and Egypt. But what did Solomon understand that made such a difference between him and those in Mesopotamia and those in Egypt and all these other wise men? What did Solomon understand that made the difference? Here's the answer. Solomon connected the Lord with life, with all of life. Solomon connected Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, with all of life. Solomon was fascinated by everything. He was a singer-songwriter. He wrote over a thousand songs and spoke over 3,000 proverbs. He was a real Renaissance man. He studied trees and birds and reptiles and fish He was even fascinated by the way a hyssop plant would grow out of a crack in the wall. When's the last time you stopped and thought about, that grass keeps coming up through the crack in my sidewalk? When's the last time you stopped and were fascinated by that? That's Solomon. In other words, Solomon would have walked into Cracker Barrel and spent a lot of money in the gift store. Understand this, Grace. Solomon did not compartmentalize God. He understood that everything in this world is connected to its creator. Therefore, everything was interesting to Solomon. 
He connected all of life to God. He believed that God was good and everything God created was good and was meant to be enjoyed by us. The wisdom that God gave to Solomon, which resulted in Solomon being interested in so many things, that wisdom shows us that God is not a killjoy, that God is not uptight. It shows us that God is not stingy. Rather, Solomon, as a Renaissance man, shows us that God is a creative and a very giving God. God is no cosmic killjoy. He invites us to enjoy Him and to enjoy His creation, even to slow down enough to enjoy seeing how a hyssop plant grows out of a crack in the wall. Part of what it means to be a human being made in the image of God is that we are called to enjoy God's world, to enjoy beasts and birds and reptiles and fish. God would have it no other way. God wants us to enjoy donuts and to enjoy coffee and to enjoy the smell of bacon frying in a pan and to enjoy naps and to enjoy nail-biting finishes to football games and to enjoy books that are so compelling that are hard to put down, and we have to say to ourselves, just one more chapter before I go to bed. And to enjoy paintings, and to enjoy sunsets, and to enjoy grandkids, and the list just goes on and on and on. God would have it no other way. So let me ask you this morning, is that how you view God? Is that what you think of when you think of God? I think so many Christians view God as a cosmic killjoy. Do you think following Jesus is like the most boring thing ever? Like, you know, you know you need to follow Jesus, but it just seems like the other team has all the fun. Is that Christianity? I hope not. All day long, as image bearers of God, we're bombarded with opportunities to enjoy God's creation and then to trace that enjoyment all the way back to God and then to glorify and enjoy Him as our wonderful, giving, sharing, creative creator. We have numerous opportunities daily to glorify and enjoy God through what we taste, through what we see, through what we smell, through what we feel, through what we hear. This was God's good design in creation. This was the way that God designed it. Joe Rigney says this, If we extend the divine endorsement of sight and taste, then here we see God enthusiastically endorsing our joy and delight in all sensible pleasures. That is, pleasures we receive through our bodily senses, pleasures that we see, smell, taste, touch and hear, provided they are enjoyed within the boundaries established by the giver of every good gift. Perhaps God could have done it another way. He might have made an immaterial world populated purely by spiritual beings. Infinite wisdom preferred stomachs and tongues and every combination of sour, sweet, salty, and savory that the chefs on the Food Network can discover because that's what they are doing, discovering all the ways that God chose to communicate his goodness, his sweetness, even his bitterness to human palates. My guess is that it will take a while. The creation of food, tongues, and the human digestive system is the product of infinite wisdom 
knitting the world together in a harmonious whole. The symphony of glory that sounds the triune being contains notes of corn salsa and sour patch kids, of sweet tea and rye bread, the kind that fills the belly. The variety of taste creates categories and gives us edible images of divine things. God could have created an immaterial world where there were spirits with no bodies and we just kind of floated around the place. But infinite wisdom preferred stomachs, digestive systems, and tongues, and taste buds to enjoy what goes down into your digestive system. So let me ask you this morning. Do you ever feel guilty for eating two donuts? Do you ever feel like it's not spiritual to spend three hours watching a football game and delighting in the skill of the players? Do you live with an underlying sense of shame and nagging guilt because you took delight in something that was not quote-unquote spiritual? Like, God doesn't want you to enjoy a nice piece of toasted sourdough bread covered in butter. Does it get any better than that? Is that you? Is that how you view God? Is that how you view God and his creation? Solomon would tell you that you have misunderstood Yahweh. Solomon would tell you that you have misunderstood God and you should go to Cracker Barrel and get a taste of who God is. Listen, the people of God have always celebrated God because celebration is important to God. Celebration is important to God. We were made to celebrate and to delight and to enjoy God. So we are a people who are called to celebrate. And we see God's passion to see his people celebrate throughout Scripture. And in the Old Testament, Yahweh called the nation of Israel to celebrate him and to celebrate his work through all of the festivals and the feasts and the sacrifices and the Sabbath. I mean, what kind of God does that sound like? Feast after feast after feast. This is my commandment to you. Feast after feast after feast. What kind of God does that sound like? It sounds like a God who likes to party. A God who likes to celebrate. A God who is not a cosmic killjoy. A God who is infinitely happy and he wants his people to enter into his happiness. A God who prefers stomachs and tongues and taste buds. A God who wants us to be seized with a rambunctious curiosity. And all of these wonderful Old Testament celebrations were at one time God's design. But now, in the new covenant, they have all been fulfilled in Jesus. All of the festivals and celebrations find their fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus. They were all pointing to Jesus and have now been fulfilled in him. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't want us to celebrate him and enjoy him anymore. Far from it. Our celebrations, our worship, our enjoyment of God should be off the chain because Jesus has come. And that's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's why we're celebrating communion today. And that's why I always tell you, before you eat the bread or drink the cup, celebrate the peace that you have with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we are a celebrating people and because celebration is important to God. Tell me, if your sins are forgiven, shouldn't celebration be an appropriate response 
If Jesus can't remember your sins anymore, Christian, shouldn't celebration be an appropriate response? Of course. So buckle up, y'all, because that's what we're about to do today. Celebrate. Celebrate the cross. Celebrate the wisdom of God. But before we do that, let's slow down, take a moment to prepare our hearts, to confess sin, to repent. Remember, the purpose of confessing our sins is not to make us miserable by simply reminding us what great sinners we are. It's to remind us of what a great Savior we have. So let's slow down and be rambunctiously curious about why Jesus died for us. Let's be rambunctiously curious about substitutionary atonement, that Jesus died in our place for our sins. Let's be rambunctiously curious about how, for our sake, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's be rambunctiously curious about how Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Let's be rambunctiously curious about Jesus, the one who loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And if we do, I think our rambunctious curiosity will lead us to celebrate. Let's pray. Father, we do pause and we acknowledge that what you say about us in your word is true. We are sinners. We have all lived in rebellion against you. And even as your children, Lord, we still live as if we're the king. We want our way. And we get mad when we don't get our way. It's proof that the heart is desperately sick and wicked. That even as your adopted children, Lord, they're still indwelling sin. And so we confess that this morning, Father, and say, we are sinners. You are right. You are holy. You are set apart. You are good. And we sin. And we ask you to forgive us. We sin in thought, word, deed, and motive. And we ask you to forgive us. And now, Lord, we want to celebrate. That though we are great sinners, Father, we don't want to stay reminded of how miserable that is. We want, as we confess our sins, to remember what a great Savior your Son Jesus is for people like us. And we want to celebrate that this morning, Lord, and to glorify you and enjoy you as we do so. In Jesus' name, amen.